in the last in the last while or two, there's been a lot more discussion about professional practice uh, based uh, with, uh, particularly in relation to what's been happening in Britain, the criticism of the, uh, the Press Complaints Commission, the Levison Inquiry, and so on. Uh, and uh, I'll just say a few words about that because it does come up sometimes uh, in conversation. I should preface my remarks by saying that if anybody wants to interrupt me and ask a question if I'm going on too long or if I'm skating over something that you feel shouldn't be skated over, please just stick your hand up and, and we'll interrupt the proceedings. But in relation to medicine, uh, there was a lot of interest in Britain in what we had done here. Uh, and as the time came close to when Leveson was going to report, there was a lot of criticism <coughs> in the British papers of our system here. I think that was because they saw the way that Leveson was going, they didn't like the way that Leveson was going, and you know the way a newspaper publishes a spoiler when, when a rival has a, has a story they're going to run or a book they're going to serialize. I think these were kind of spoiler type articles. They wanted to try and nudge Levison away from that position. Uh, and I was speaking, uh, and uh, so I had to go to various meetings in Britain around the time of Levison very often to explain to people why we had done what we had done, how we had done it, and why it wasn't what they were afraid it was. I won a meeting of the Association Society of Editors in Belfast about six or eight months ago. I was asked, what lessons did the Irish scheme have for British newspaper industry? And I had to say that <coughs> we didn't do reverse imperialism, which got uh, quite a warm response. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but that said, I think you can look at what's happening in Britain at the present time and wonder why they've got themselves into such difficulties as they believe they have. I think there are a couple of factors there that are perhaps relevant. One is that it took us four years to put together what we put together. They've been trying to do it in four months. It's just not possible. Secondly, even though the core of the Levison report, if you look at the executive summary, you can find it in recommendation number 71, the core of the Levison report is an exact replication of what we have here. And that is that newspapers and journalists should decide what professional practice is, but that somebody else should decide whether they're living up to it or not. Now, that, that is the core recommendation of Levison. Uh, the problems that have arisen around Levison are because uh, of the arguments about what kind of a structure is going to be set up on the other side uh, and should and I, I, I think he's a very very clever man and went through a lot of trouble in his report but I tend to think that the structures that he suggested were a bit over complicated, a bit top heavy would become a bit too expensive from, and so on, and ours are much simpler and so far they, I think they work reasonably well but there, there was another problem uh, in relation to Nelson which I think is underlies the opposition of the newspapers uh, to what he's proposing and that he to some extent qualified his suggestion that the code of practice or whatever they're going to come up with should be under the control of journalists he, his recommendations envisage a certain fairly substantial input by the public interest if you like by non-journalists into the creation of the code itself. And I think if you're going to have uh, a system that has two pillars, you know, a separation of powers, then there has to be a real separation of powers and that neither the public interest nor the press should have a dominant influence in both parts of that structure. So I, I feel that there's a little bit of an imbalance there and I think that is probably at the root of the of some of the resistance by the British press to his proposals. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what's going to eventually out of it at the end of the day, but it will be, be really interesting. Anyway, that said, um, uh, 
Aileen mentioned at the beginning that she uh, that it would be important for you to know how we operated in the event of complaints being made about um, anything that you might write or broadcast. Well, we have nothing to do with broadcast, but the principle is the same in both cases. I really, I speak from a position of perfect ignorance about this. I don't know what happens when somebody complains about an article that some of you as a freelance might have written for any publication. But it seems that it would be absolutely essential that you build up a good enough relationship with your commissioning editors so that when they get a complaint about something that you've written, they don't try and sort it without coming back to you. Uh, and I would, I would even argue, because a, a, a lot of the stress and the emphasis in our system is on conciliation, reading <coughs> and finding win-win solutions, that it is desperately important that if you have written the article, if somebody's made a complaint about your article, that you should be the first person to try and sort it out. Uh, because you're the person closest to the action, but the person who's making the complaint is equally close to the action on the other side. And if the two of you can come to some agreement uh, about how this can be sorted, obviously the commissioning editor will have to be drawn into that process. But it's far more likely that you will get a satisfactory solution if it's tackled early, if it's tackled at the place where it happens, uh, and if it's dealt with uh, professionally, because my experience uh, again has been, and this is uh, should be no surprise to anybody because it's human nature that the longer it takes to solve, to deal with a problem the more people will develop trench warfare mentality the more difficulty, the more difficult it will be to arrive at any kind of reasonable solution that satisfies the thing uh, the other aspect of that uh, another aspect of that is that uh, and this was said to me by a very prominent NUJ member so I don't mind repeating it uh, as it didn't become necessary for me he said the problem about us is that journalists don't do contrition uh, and I think I know where that's coming from and there's a very uh, clear place where it's coming from and that was that until the passage of the recent Defamation Act if any journalist or editor ever apologised for anything or admitted that they got something wrong, they were in the high court pulling out their wallets, you know? And the only question was how much? Not whether or not, it was how much. So that, that's a big cultural legacy which it takes a lot of time for journalists, editors, commission editors, and attorney executives to get over. I'm the f I will be the first to agree <coughs> or to accept in relation to uh, uh, what, what appears in newspapers and magazines that fairly commonly most people who are written about in newspapers would like to be portrayed as slightly better than they actually are. <coughs> On the other hand, uh, if things are obviously unfair uh, and distorted and whatever, you know, they, they, they may have a case. Uh, at the same time, you do get, and we do get complaints from time to time, which are about such trivial stuff that it's, that it, that it's very difficult to find an appropriate response that doesn't give this complainant the idea that they're not being taken seriously. Every complaint is taken seriously. But not every complaint needs the full panoply of our structure to deal with it. And the way, around, the way to prevent that becoming an issue is for newspapers and individual journalists uh, to handle complaints immediately and directly and swiftly themselves so that they will never really end up on our doorstep. Um, uh, that, 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 that's, I think, look, and, I, and in my honest experience, over the last five years since we came into operation, newspapers, complaint handling processes internally have by and large improved very substantially. 
because they've realized <coughs> the handling problems and complaints, uh, whether mistakes have taken place or not, handling them swiftly and fairly and, being and occasionally going halfway to meet the complainer isn't an admission of weakness it is uh, part of something that underpins the kind of the unwritten agreement between journalists and the public that if they get things wrong they are prepared to put their hands up and say yeah, sure we did it you know, we got it wrong, sorry but, you know <coughs> so it, it, what we're talking about here is cultural change because we're coming out of that pre-defamation situa law situation in which you could never say you were wrong you could never admit uh, that you were wrong or much less apologize to anybody for it and cultural change is very slow you can't legislate for it you can't even write a code that will solve it uh, it happens uh, over a long period of time and it happens because people are nudged in a certain direction rather than forced to become in a certain direction and the, the last thing I'd say before going into specifics about the code and I'll get specific is that in the last analysis uh, laws codes, whatever they are only frameworks. They are not the answer to the maiden's prayer. They don't solve all the problems. And uh, that is why our code is a collection of ten principles. They're principles. They're not rules. And I'll give you some examples of this when I go, when I go, when I go through it. And they're principles rather than rules because every situation is different. And what you have to do, what I have to do as ombudsman, and what you have to do in your own professional practice, you look at every situation in the light of a principle and you interpret <coughs> it for yourself. And the critical thing about all of this is that the principles, values, if you like, that are incorporated in something like the code of practice, have to be internalized uh, by journalists, by editors, uh, uh, particularly. Because if they're not internalized, if this just becomes a game between the media on one side and the public on the other, uh, um, there's, there's an activity called um, playing the game or something, or game, game management, in, in, in which it will become a playground for barrack room lawyers, in which the interests of the public, to the interests of which are the interests we're all supposed to be served, will get lost in a kind of cat and mouse game between the regulators and the regulators. Uh, and, and how many loopholes can you find here? You know? Can we, push, can we push the envelope here a bit? So what I'm saying is that the values that are enshrined in our principles are, I think, that they're written by journalists, are values that are uh, common to our profession, and that they, but they, they need to be internalized, not, not looked on as a tablet of stone coming down from Mount Sinai, uh, which have to be obeyed in all particulars. So, let me go through um, uh, some aspects of this code to give you an, an example, to some examples of, of, of how they're being interpreted. Uh, I must, uh, when I write a decision, or when the council writes a decision, we tend not to go back over our decisions in the sense that we don't get into argy-bargy afterwards. The argy-bargy takes place beforehand. We don't get into argy-bargy afterwards about whether it was right, whether it was wrong, why it was right, why it was wrong. When I write a decision, uh, I try and come to the correct decision, obviously, I'm not always right, I'm not infallible. Uh, two of my decisions were overturned by the Council on Appeal only last week. Um, it, uh, at least, uh, and one of certain, probably the other one as well, I think they were probably right, because, you know, uh, second thoughts are sometimes best. Um, uh, and uh, as a famous judge, one of the American Supreme Court judges once had to overturn one of his own decisions in a libel case when it came back to him many years later by part of another action. And he, he was faced with the problem of how do you explain to people that you've changed your mind uh, without appearing to be inconsistent? And he had this marvelous phrase, he said, 
Wisdom comes seldom. Just because it comes late, there's no reason to reject it. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a great argument. The other great argument was uh, the other great argument was John Maynard Keynes, the economist, who was once asked why he had changed his mind uh, by somebody who was try attacking him about something other. He said, "Well, if in circumstances change, he said, I change my mind. What do you do?" Which is all. Which is another way of putting it. I think we shouldn't be hung up on rigid legalistic interpretations of things because things do change. First of all, the first thing I draw your attention to is the preamble. Uh, this is uh, <coughs> the preamble is not that's not one of the ten principles, but there are very important things in it, uh, and the two most important things in it are the, uh, the second or third paragraph, the third or fourth <coughs> paragraph. It's the duty of the press ombudsman and the press council to ensure that it's honoured in the spirit as well as in the letter and the duty of publications to assist them in that task. I interpret that as meaning, quite simply, that no complaint should be rejected or upheld on the basis of a technicality alone. That you have to look behind the actual letter of the thing, because it's only a principle, it's not a strict set of rules, and say, look, is something going on here that shouldn't be going on? Or is the complainant really trying to push an, a legalistic interpretation of the code too far? So that gives a lot of latitude, uh, both to newspapers and magazines and indeed to ourselves. The last paragraph of the, um, of the preamble is about the public interest. It's a terrific definition. I mean, I would recommend it. If, the, if, if anybody is uh, unclear about when a public interest argument will be accepted by me about a press council as a de in defence of something that you might want to publish, you couldn't get you couldn't get a better definition of it or a clearer definition of that. And funnily enough, uh, I was in London about a year ago and I was talking to a PCC person. We were talking about this public interest issue, and he said, "What's what's your people's definition of the public interest?" So I fished the code out of my pocket and I showed it to him, and he looked at it and thought for a moment he said, oh, it's so well written. <laughs> and it is. And it's so much clearer and better than the PCC's definition of the law for public interest. Now, when you look at the code as a whole, uh, there are two principles which come up more than any other. Principle one, truth and accuracy, and principle uh, five, privacy. Um, I, I can put a bit of a gloss on both of those for you. Truth and accuracy. There's a question that I've never been able to answer satisfactorily for myself. Is there a difference? <coughs> and what is it? Conor Cruz O'Brien wrote a piece in the Irish Times oh, about 30 years ago in which he pointed to the fact that it was quite possible for an article to appear in a newspaper in which every single fact is accurate but which nonetheless is designed to lead people to a certain conclusion that might, they might not reach if certain other facts had not been included. Now, he didn't describe this un as untruthful, he described it as disingenuous. Uh, and, um, and we're, I mean, I've done it. I know I've done it when I was a working journalist sometimes. Uh, and you would do it almost unconsciously. You would, you would form a view about the situation, and you would assemble the facts, and you would present them in such a way that almost subliminally tends to support your interpretation of the thing. Uh, and I had my knuckles wrapped when I was working during this time. I'll, I'll give you a very simple example. There was, um, there was a, when I was working with the Irish Times sometime, would have been the late, the early 70s, there was one of the first <coughs> uh, opinion polls about divorce. And the poll was split 49 to 51. Uh, I think 51% of the people were in favour and 49% of the people were in favour. 
So I was given the poll I had to write the story. And I thought, a majority of people in Ireland are favouring favour divorce, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, uh, and I thought then of the alternative. That didn't look very good either. And eventually, partly because of the training I got and because of the ethos and the standards in, that, in the paper at the time, I, I uh, said, well, there's no alternative. I wrote a lead which began, opinion in Ireland about divorce is almost equally divided. <laughs> Not as sexy, you know, yeah. but much closer to an accurate representation of the thing. So, um, uh, the difference between truth and accuracy is, I think, you, you could sum it up by, by saying that whatever your own feelings are, uh, it's best to approach things in a fair-minded way and to make sure that if you have a point of view, that the other point of view is reasonably well represented if there are grounds for representing it in any particular article. Which doesn't apply necessarily to opinion pieces. Opinion pieces are almost designed to be unfair. You have a lot more license in opinion. Look at, look at the principle of the code which says, uh, uh, principle two, uh, newspapers and magazines are entitled to advocate strongly their own views on topics, you know? And as long as they don't present their views as fact, uh, without any accompanying evidence, uh, I've long crusaded against evidence-free journalism, uh, but in opinion pieces, you do have a lot of latitude, and it's fair that there should be. A lot of it, some of the complaints that I get from people are simply complaints that their opinion is different from the opinion of the newspaper. And I can't make a decision on that. Uh, I'll give you, again, give you a few examples. Uh, sometimes, they're about med sometimes they're about medical stuff. You know, there was a, a big argument around in the Irish Times about um, stem cell research. And the complainants wanted me to decide that they were right and the person who wrote the Irish Times were wrong. I said, life is too short, you know, and I don't have any confidence in this area. So, unfortunately, go away, take a long cold shower or something, but it's not my job to decide complex issues of, of fact or of argument uh, between, between two sides that are hotly contested. Um, now, look at 1-1 uh, again. Uh, in reporting news and information, newspapers and magazines shall strive at all times for truth and accuracy. There have been decisions, I, I can't be specific about them now, but there have certainly been decisions where I've held that in particular circumstances newspapers didn't strive hard enough. And that is why I, I would have upheld a complaint. Um, look at Principle 4, uh, the last line of Principle 4. Uh, papers and magazines must take reasonable care in checking facts uh, before publication. You can take that to the same part of principle one. And yet it's not always easy to make a decision. To take, to take, to give an example, if a newspaper, if, if you're writing an article about a complicated subject and that article presents a certain person in a bad light, right? Do you have a responsibility to give that person the opportunity to know in general terms what you're, how you're going to describe their attitude or their position and invite them to say something so that you can incorporate it in the article in whatever way you feel that it's relevant? Um, in broad terms, I would say that you should. And the, and, uh, and the decision that was made by the press council last week, uh, uh, I'm not sure if it's on our website yet, but it will be on our website fairly soon. So please treat it in confidence just for the time being. Uh, somebody complained that the newspaper had written, published an article about them without going back to them for a comment. And when we asked the newspaper about this, the newspaper said, oh, well, we wrote another, we wrote articles about this person before, and whenever we went back, we went to ask him for a comment, he told us to take a long walk on a short pier, so we didn't think it was worthwhile going back to him again, and we went to somebody else in his organization. And the council decided, no, that's not good enough. If, you know, just because somebody has refused to comment before, doesn't mean to say that under the code, 
you you can you can avoid going back to them if there's then repetitions on the field. But look at another situation. If somebody stands up at a public meeting and makes a total idiot of themselves, you know, and you're there and you're scared, you know, and you go back to the paper and the editor says to you, did you really say that? And he said, yes, there's my note, my short note. Uh, well, the, and the editor says, well, maybe you should go back and ask him, you know, did you mean that, whatever. I think you're perfectly within your rights. And so, no, there was a public meeting. He knew the press was there. He said it. I'm sure he said it. I can prove he said it. If I go back to him, he'll say, oh, I, d- oh, I meant that to be off the record. You know? And suddenly you're in a difficult situation because you've been asked but something off the public record that was on the public record. So you can see how in different situations the same rule can be applied uh, in different ways. In the first case, you could argue a very strong case going back to somebody and saying before you publish anything about them in a general article that you should ask for them, not for permission, but ask if they want to uh, say anything about Secondly, anything that is said in the public domain on the public record is really open season if people make fools of themselves in public, you're not there to protect them necessarily. So, um, the the next thing about the principle where I've seen begins around out of time, I better shut up. So, uh, it says, <coughs> and, th- and this is difficult for freelancers, because as freelancers, you don't really have a lot of control over the way that complaints about your articles are handled in papers. Um, one, two says, when a significant inaccuracy, I stress the word significant, some people complain about inaccuracies that are really quite small. And they get very upset about these, and sometimes I have to say, I'm sorry, this is not significant, uh, and I'm not going to do it. It shall be corrected promptly and with due prominence. And when appropriate or attraction, apology, clarification, explanation, or response shall be published promptly on this due promise. If you look back over the decisions that we've made over the years, you'll see a couple of things. If a newspaper publishes something inaccurate about somebody, and they want it correctly, a lot depends on where the stuff came from in the first place. If the newspaper publishes something inaccurate about somebody because somebody said it and they said, you know uh, Mr. Murphy said this about Mr. Jones yesterday and here is the report then it's quite in order for a newspaper uh, to suggest to the complainant, look you say that what Mr. Murphy said about you is wrong, uh, you send this letter and we'd be happy to publish it and they publish it and it's a, it's a row between Mr. Murphy and Mr. Jones which is carried on by proxy through the newspaper. But if the newspaper says Mr. Jones is a liar, a card sharp, and a thief, without attributing this to anybody on its own authority, <coughs> then the onus, in my view, for correcting somebody, that, that's an expression of opinion, but if you said that somebody, if you said that somebody was a, a, a drug addict or an, a, a drug dealer, and they can demonstrate to you that they haven't ever been charged, convicted, or investigated for drug care. If there's, if there's something that the paper has said on its own authority, without attributing it to the guards or to another newspaper or whatever, then I believe that the newspaper should correct that on its own authority and there are decisions uh, in, in relation to that. But there's been a long practice in newspapers, and some complainants accept it, and if they accept it, I'm not going to interfere. But a newspaper publishes something that is, in effect, correction. They call it a clarification. Um, I don't know if many of you watched uh, Yes Minister. Uh, there's a marvelous, a marvelous passage in Yes Minister when Hacker has got himself into trouble yet again. And the two civil servants are trying to work out how to, uh, how to, how to get him out of this trouble. And Bernard comes to Sir Humphrey with a piece of paper. So, Sir Humphrey, I've drafted this clarification. Do you think this would sort of the situation? And Sir Humphrey looks at it and his lip curls in disgust. He says, Bernard, you've got it entirely wrong. 
purpose of clarification is not to clarify anything, it's to put out in the clear. So, this has been part of the culture of newspapers, you know, they clarify things rather than correct because they feel that they lose credibility, they lose influence, that they lose whatever it is they don't want to lose uh, by correcting, uh, much less apologizing. And you will find generally that you would, if newspapers apologize for anything, it is usually not very little to do with Although we have, all the newspapers have apologized to complainants to us, but generally speaking, it is only at the end of a very big financial or legal piece of artillery that they will apologize for anything. Anyway, I'll leave principle one to go briefly on principle five. Um, Priority. There's a conflict here. There's always a conflict here. There's a co- and the conflict is between the right of uh, newspapers to publish stuff and the right of people to have their privacy respected. And this conflict goes right back to the European Commission of Human Rights, uh, which states two principles of equal value, the right to privacy and the right to freedom of expression. So a lot of our decisions are balancing acts between these two things. Um, and uh, it's not always easy to make the call. Um, they are all value judgments. Uh, I'm, I'm only thankful that unlike the people who handle complaints about broadcasters, I don't have to make decisions about taste. Uh, but some of the decisions that I make and that the council makes about privacy you know, are effectively decisions about taste. And I'll give you uh, a, a concrete example. Uh, inquests. Inquests are particularly because they often happen maybe a year or more after after a death, particularly in cases where people are taking their own lives, are all that old emotion comes kind of surging back, particularly for the people most closely involved. And there was a case um, some time ago where a newspaper reported on an inquest and reported the evidence in some detail. And they thought, honestly, I mean, I, I, they, they weren't doing this in clever kind of way. They really thought that if they didn't publish the name of the person who was, who was, who was being, whose, whose death was being investigated, that this was, would protect the privacy of the family. But in the circumstances involved, they not only, it was a, and it was a small rural community, uh, they didn't publish the name, but they published the text of the phone text that this young man had sent his mother just before he hanged himself, and they published a description of his mother as she sat in the inquest listening to this being read out. It was very dramatic. Mm-hmm. You can understand how the reporter was uh, seized by the drama of the thing. And then, just they made the wrong call. They thought that if we don't publish the name, you know, we'll be all right. But this is, this is all a learning process. <coughs> we all have to go through things. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes, and my mistakes, thank goodness, are corrected by the press council. Uh, and, and, and that's a kind of checks and balances system. And I'm sure the same happens in newspapers and magazines. And certainly, if my experience is anything to go by, uh, newspapers and magazines are learning. And, and we, have an, we have another system uh, which is, is, it doesn't operate under the radar because I've written about it in our annual report. And that is, in cases where families are under acute stress and where there's a lot of newspaper and media interest in that family, they sometimes come to us to ask their privacy be respected. I can never in advance say to a newspaper or magazine, don't go there, don't report this, don't publish this, don't publish that. I simply <coughs> pass on the concern. If, if I think that there might be a risk that the code might be broken, uh, and I would set the bar fairly high on that, uh, because the legitimate interest of the press is something I have to respect as well. I'm not, I'm not a consumer advocate for complainants. As ombudsman, I have to hold the links between complainants and newspapers. I have to be impartial as between both, and I can make decisions 
not on the basis of my own preference and my own views, but on the basis of what some of the other factors. So I do occasionally, very, I mean, it would happen no more than half a dozen times in a year, and sometimes not as often as that, send out an advisory note to newspapers saying, look, family X have requested privacy in relation to what's going on around them. Uh, I'm simply passing on this information to you. Um, uh, they ask their privacy to respect it. I'm doing this without prejudice to any decision that might be made if a complaint comes in in the future. And the response of newspapers to this has been extraordinarily positive. Because they know that if they respect, uh, if they come to the, come to the conclusion that principle five of privacy should operate here to some extent, uh, and if they pull back, they know that because every other editor has got the same notice, there's a fair chance that everybody else will be pulling back as well. So the, the competitive thing that does drive mistakes sometimes doesn't operate. So there, there are all sorts of examples like that. I'll give you one more example from the code about why it is a code of principles and not rules. Uh, that's principle 9-2. Look at principle 9-2. Journalists and editors should have regard for the vulnerability of children and in all dealings with children should bear in mind the age of the child. It doesn't say you can't report anything about somebody under 10. Of course you can. Depends. Uh, should bear in mind the age of the child. Whether parental or other adults can be obtained, it doesn't say you have to get permission of the parents or the adults, just as you should think about getting it. And if you think it's important, maybe you should. But if you don't, it doesn't necessarily mean it's automatically a breach of the code. Uh, sensitive to the subject matter and what circumstances, if any, make the story one of public interest. I'll give you an example of two decisions that were made about children. Uh, one was in relation to, they were both in relation to civil court cases uh, for damages arising out of traffic accidents as child had been injured. Uh, the first complaint that I had was in relation to a child of 10 uh, who had been photographed outside the court very properly and so on. I said, there's absolutely nothing illegal about this. And the code doesn't make anything illegal. And there are lots of legal things that people don't do simply because of the code. But the, but the, the, the kid was photographed after the case outside the court and his parents complained. He was 10. I scratched my head for a long time over that. And I thought, no, it's not really a breach of the code. But I put a line in my decision to say, just to remind editors, just think about these things when you're doing it. You know, make sure that you don't go overboard or whatever. I didn't, I didn't spell that. I just said, just be, be conscious of this part of it. The next complaint, well, uh, I had a complaint then about an entirely different case sometime later. Again, a child, again engaged uh, involved in a traffic accident. The child was only five and had suffered facial scarring in the accident. And I came to the different decision on that one. I said, it had been a breach of the code. So, same principle, two children, two traffic accidents, but there was enough difference between the cases to allow me, or to encourage me to make a different decision in that particular case. So, I hope I haven't left you with the idea that all of this is as long as a piece of string, you know. Uh, but if I could leave you with any thought at all, it is that if you internalize the values that are in the code and discuss them with people, uh, discuss them with editors. Uh, 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 we had a man from the Sun came over about three years ago to talk to us about their dealings with the PCC, and he gave me an example of a very, of a very uh, aggressive British tabloid editor who asked a reporter to do a certain story, and the reporter came back to the editor and said, "If I do this story like this, we'd be in breach of the PCC code." So the editor in front of Hall for a moment said, Oh, all right, he says, We'll go away and find some way of doing it that doesn't breach the PCC code. <laughs> <laughs> that's, not the worst, uh, that's not the worst outcome, you know, of yeah. codes. But people take it seriously and turn that. So I'm sorry I've taken up too much of your time, but I'm open my ground. That was really interesting, and it just what I, ha I have here, I don't know how anybody else has it, is it's actually a little kind of 
uh, I made certainly one decision that the, the, one particular article, I can't remember which one it was now, was a breach of principle age because it was capable of causing grave concern uh, of people who have a certain sexual orientation. Another article, I didn't have public debate because it was a political article saying this is wrong or whatever, you know, and, and, and advancing political reasons rather than simply citing people off in a way that I felt was uh, offensive on the code. Um, now, having said that, it is beyond doubt that many articles which give offence to many people for many reasons are not in any shape or form a breach of the code. You know? If newspapers never cause offence to anybody, we'd be in a much worse state than we are. And a lot of people who are offended uh, sometimes need to be asked or to be suggested that they should just calm down and get over it. Because that's life. And the truth sometimes hurts. So take one or two more questions, sir. David Hyden, student from Rathmines College. Um, you've mentioned it just towards the end of your speech um, and, and during it that the press might have had a spoiling influence on proceedings in the Leveson inquiry, and they may have had a spoiling influence, and, <coughs> and that there may be certain different requirements that the UK media has, like from their, their media culture historically. Um, do you think they're, they're in a position that they can self, they could self regulate the way it works here? Or they do have very specific different requirements. Well, I'm very slow to, to specify what they should be doing for themselves. You know, I think I think something needs to be done. I think I think the PCC made a number of mistakes, particularly about phone hangers. My very strong view about that was once it came to their attention that there was evidence of something like that going on, they should. This was a matter for the police not a matter for a regulator and when we talk about regulation I tend not to talk about the press council and myself as regulators we are really mechanisms for accountability and redress the press is already very substantially regulated by the law the law of defamation, court official secrets, freedom of information whatever, you know there are lots of laws out there that regulate the press it may not be that prime function but it's their substantial function and that's not our function if there's somebody else who's supposed to be doing that job they should do it and one of the failures was not a failure of the press it was a failure of the British police system that didn't take these complaints seriously when they should have done one more question that we won't have copy okay at the back pardon alright no I just I thought we were going to ask one out um Slightly related to what you were saying about blogs, I'm at the moment working my way through a way to set up an online news magazine only, and be online only, no prints. Uh, yeah. I, I actually went to the Ombudsman website over the weekend to see what the story. There's, there's, there's one website listed as, as being a member of Farrell, which yeah. I think actually is now defunct. I'm not sure. They paid us last year for some reason. I was wondering if you could tell me. I assume because there is a website and there's no problem with online news sources being. I'm not sure. Is In principle, yeah. What are the costs and procedures for registering an online news site, a blog? Yeah. With the the the, this has come up recently because we've had an application for membership from the journal <coughs> and when we had this application for membership uh, uh, I think on far road it came in originally it's a pretty small website and they came in at the same rate effectively as uh, a magazine which is 250 a year or something like that but when the journal arrived uh, we realised that all, uh, with the exception of the far rule, that all our member publications are members because they are members of a trade association like national newspapers, regional newspapers, magazines, and and they all came in as a job loss, if you like, uh, with them. So we realised that we didn't have either criteria or procedures for people like the journal who wants to join. So it took us longer than I would have wanted but we have now established criteria established procedures and the um, application for the journal is currently being considered under those and that the same would, would hold 
YouTube or any other website that wants to join. So if you wanted a copy of our criteria and procedures you're writing, you can copy of them. And the only thing I the only thing I would say apart from that is that the cost is not decided by the council. The cost is decided by the by the administrative committee, which is effectively the body that has it doesn't control our budget, it gives us our money every year. If, and once it's given us the budget, there's no control over how it's spent or there's no role in decision making or anything like that. But because they're the funding agency, they're the people who decide who pays what. And the criteria under which they decide that are a matter for them. Is there ever an opening for someone to set up the online newspapers of Ireland to go along with the MNI and the provincial? Uh, <laughs> I, well, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened somewhere down the line. Uh, uh, but I mean, on the other hand, newspapers are going on. Uh, I talked to somebody in Australia the other day and they told me that in their view, the Fairfax group, which is the second largest group in, of newspapers in Australia, might be totally online within 10 years. And, 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 only, and only the Murdoch newspapers in Australia would be still published on paper. You know? So, so th there, is, there is a convergence taking place. And my, uh, my, my personal view of this work is that uh, if we don't uh, recognize that this convergence is taking place and do the make the appropriate uh, adjustments or uh, policy decisions in relation to that, that we'll be left kind of on our limb. Speaking of... Uh, I don't know, are, are, are any of you familiar with, with fate, the fate or the good fortune of the like Andrew Sullivan, the American blogger? Uh, Andrew decided, he was blogged for a number of papers and all the rest of it. He decided to set up on his own. And he decided that 90% of his content would be available free. And he asked subscribers, he asked people to subscribe $19.99 for the other 10%. Within a couple of months, he had raised a quarter of a million dollars. So maybe that's not yeah. strong again. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mind you. Six hundred thousand. Yeah. Yeah. Newspapers like yeah. that trend. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to wrap it up there. I know it's all questions, but I think Johnny's safe for a couple of coffee for a while yet. I'm going to say thanks very much to Professor Hawkins for coming along for his really good insight into what he does and how it's working. And I just say the press ombuds man, as he says in the report, is an arbiter rather than a consumer advocate, which is yeah. a very good summary of what he does and what he do. And I think it's a really good sign for the newspaper industry has managed to settle into it yeah. so well, so there's a lot of fears uh, around it. So, and for journalists to understand how it works, really important. So thanks very much, John, and uh,